He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's so great and wonderful to have all of you with us today. As you may know or suspect, Father Scott and his family are out of town over the next few weeks, so I've been tasked with steering the ship while he's away. Vacations uh, full of rest and fun are a good and holy thing, so we pray that will be the case for the Bailey family over the next few weeks as they travel. Now, over the past two weeks, Father Scott has preached sermons relating to following and working for Jesus. They have been insightful, direct, and hard-hitting at many places. And there's a reason for this beyond Father Scott's desire to be serious and sober-minded in his sermons. It's where we are in Luke's gospel. Father Scott mentioned a few weeks ago that St. Luke tells us after his transfiguration in, in chapter 9, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the turn in St. Luke's account where the story of Jesus picks up more intensity. The fun and exciting days of Jesus' ministry had ended. Things are more serious from here on out, including his words about following him and his words toward those who would reject him. So in that vein, this morning's sermon might share in that overall feeling of intensity and directness. Two weeks ago, we heard about the discipleship that Jesus offers. Last week, we heard about the work of the kingdom that Jesus offers. And this morning, we will discuss the salvation that Jesus offers. Both our gospel and New Testament readings deal with aspects of salvation, so that's where I want to locate my sermon this morning. We might ask ourselves, what does it mean to be saved? What mental picture comes into your mind when you hear the words saved or salvation? I can't speak for every person here today, but I would imagine that many would think of something like being forgiven of their sins or going to heaven when they die. There's a good reason for that. For quite some time now, the church in the West, particularly America, has envisioned and communicated being saved as a forgiven Christian going to heaven to be with Jesus when they die. I've been to many Christian funerals, and almost every single one, I can note one exception, has mentioned the deceased person being in heaven with Jesus. That person's salvation has been fully realized. What this is all about has happened because what this is all about is going to heaven when you die. The one exception that I mentioned a few seconds ago was the funeral for a young man who was a member of the Orthodox Church, which is a bit more Eastern in its understanding of the Christian faith and particularly in its understanding of salvation. So this morning, I want to share from the wisdom of the Orthodox tradition and from a few of the church fathers. I believe we'll find much to consider as we let them guide us today. 
So what does salvation from an ancient Christian and Orthodox perspective mean? Now, something that you may or may not know about me is that I am a big fan of playing and watching sports. And I certainly enjoy playing several different sports even more than watching them. But one exception to this is tennis. I am not a very good tennis player. But since I was a teenager, I very much enjoyed watching tennis. And I should say I enjoy watching good tennis. I imagine watching bad tennis is akin to listening to bad preaching. So you can let me know after the service. <clears throat> In the late 80s and early 90s, men's tennis was dominated by two athletes in particular. One, a consummate professional who would set the record for most major championships at the time. It's since been bro broken by a few other men. And the other was a bit of a rock and roll, wild rebel guy who seemed to live a life that you would read about in the tabloids. Now, for illustrative purposes only, we'll have a few photos of them to look at. So if we could show the first slide, please. Now, this is Pete Sampras. He was not the most exciting or flashy player in his day, but he was the best player. When he was playing his best game, he was nearly impossible to defeat. He was a true champion uh, who was admired by all, but you could almost fall asleep watching him play and listening to his post-match post press conferences. There was nothing about him that would capture your imagination or draw you to him. He just went out, played his game, and won all the time, as if that was not enough. Now let's show the second slide. This is Andre Agassi. He's a bit more of a colorful character and player than his rival Pete Sampras. He had the brightly colored clothes, the hair, the flashy and aggressive style of tennis that made people either love him or hate him. He dated Barbara Streisand and married Brooke Shields. He lived the fast life. Now, to be fair, he won his share of matches, even major championships, but not like his rival. In fact, in head-to-head -head matches, Pete Sampras owns Andre Agassi. Agassi would lose 20 of the 34 times he played Pete Sampras, and six of those losses came in the final of a major championship. Clearly, he was second fiddle to the boring guy. But he had sponsorships and money that probably brought him a lot of comfort after those tough losses. One of his most famous sponsorships was with the camera company, Canon. And he had the best slogan in a series of famous commercials for Canon. The model that he sold for them was even called the Rebel. In one commercial, he wears this white suit, nice white suit, drives a Lamborghini. And he gets out of it, and he lowers his sunglasses and looks right in the camera and says, image is everything. Now, it's not hard to imagine him saying that to us today. I mean, he embodied that phrase. In his autobiography, he discussed how this slogan came to define him as a tennis player in person. In open, in autobiography, he said, overnight, the slogan becomes synonymous with me. Sports writers liken this slogan to my inner nature, my essential being. They say it's my philosophy, my religion, and they predict it's going to be my epitaph. Now, he would go on to settle down and shed this persona, wear more traditional sportswear, cut his hair, and win many tournaments, including a gold medal at the 1996 Olympic Games. But truly, the phrase image is everything will always be associated with him. 
And the thing is, is he's right. Image is everything. Now, this is something that I think is borderline intuitive to us. Whether we realize it or not, more often I think we do realize it than we would care to admit, we attempt to project an image to those with whom we interact. We are all about image. The question we need to ask ourselves is, what image are we all about? Our New Testament reading this morning gives us a description of Jesus as the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1:15 through 20 is considered by many biblical scholars to be a hymn in honor of Christ. One noted scholar, F.F. Bruce, says that the passage can be broken down into three parts. Christ, the agent in creation, Christ, the Lord of the universe and the head of the church, and Christ, the agent in reconciliation. Now, I want to highlight two things from this passage in order to help us understand and imply our gospel reading, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The first thing I want to highlight is St. Paul's designation of Jesus Christ as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I'd love to spend the rest of today's sermon preaching and exploring the meanings and implications of that phrase, but I can't. So please show me some grace as I will briefly, briefly highlight what is meant by Christ being the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. The Greek term for image used here is icon. That's a term and concept that we may be somewhat familiar with. We use that term both inside and outside of the church with varying degrees of meanings attached to it. Simply put, Jesus is a visible icon of the invisible God. To see Jesus is to see God himself. F.F. Bruce notes, to say that Christ is the image of God is to say that in him, the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. That in him, the invisible has become visible. Jesus said something like this himself in St. John's gospel. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, when we heard St. Paul's passage a few moments ago, and even in so far my sermon, if you thought about Genesis chapter 1, somewhere between verses 26 and 28, where Genesis states that man was created in the image of God to rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, and that God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. If that's what you thought of when you heard these words, then I say, well done to you. Because I think that's the connection St. Paul wanted his readers and hearers to make. As all of humanity is created in God's image, and since Genesis 3, all humanity reveals that image in a very distorted way, it is Jesus Christ who reveals that image without any distortion or imperfection. The incarnate Christ is the faithful human, representing all of humanity to God, who lived the human life fully as God intended from the beginning. Much more can be said about that, but for now, I'll press on. The phrase firstborn of all creation is not telling us that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was created and he is the highest created being among all of creation. That's an ancient heresy known as Arianism. It's still with us today in the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and in the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses. Both groups teach that there was a time that Jesus did not exist. Now, we do not believe that in any way, shape, or form. 
Jesus was not created by the Father. He was begotten of the Father before all worlds, as the Nicene Creed tells us. The phrase refers to Jesus' kingship. It's an Old Testament way talking about Jesus from a royal perspective. In fact, so is the phrase image of God. Both phrases highlight the ruling aspect of Jesus. As you might expect, since humanity was created in God's image, it was meant to rule as well. That was lost when humanity decided not to trust God and go a different way. Now, just in these two phrases, we can see a Christ who reigns supreme in all the cosmos and that he is the center of all things. The second thing I want to highlight is that the end of our reading, this is put in terms of our salvation. Verse 20 makes it clear that all that has been said in the preceding four verses finds its culmination in Jesus. He is the agent of creation, the ruler of the cosmos, the one who reconciles all things to God. Love to say so much more about this, but we're pressing on. But we're going to keep these two things in mind as we explore a lawyer trying to trap Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Our gospel reading tells us that a lawyer wanting to trap Jesus asks him a question. Now we get it that a good lawyer will not ask a question they don't already know the answer to. And we have a good lawyer here. He asks Jesus, what must he do to inherit eternal life? Jesus does what he always does in the gospels. He answers a question with a question. In this case, two questions. What does the law say? And how do you interpret what it says? The lawyer correctly responds with what we know from our own liturgy as the summary of the law, the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And another command found in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. He's paid close attention to Jesus since he was the first one to teach these two as the greatest commandment. Jesus affirms his correct response, but the lawyer has motives. His follow-up question of who is my neighbor is quite revealing. You see, he is not asking the question so that he might know exactly who he must go out and love. He is asking the question so that he might know who is not his neighbor, thus finding the limit to whom he must extend love. He wants to know who he doesn't have to love. What's the limit to my love, Jesus? Who can I still dislike, abuse, and hate? Jesus doing what he does best tells him a story. We know it well. A man gets beaten up and robbed. A priest walks by, sees him, and does nothing. A Levite walks by, sees him, and does nothing. The two holiest groups in that time and place show no mercy and no compassion on another human, another image bearer. Interesting to note, in that social context, due to their tribal ancestry, both the priest and the Levite come from the tribe of Levi, they had status. It might not have been such a terrible thing for them to simply pass by the robbed man. But now the story takes a turn. A Samaritan approaches the man. He sees him and has compassion. He cleans up his wounds with oil and wine, puts him on his own animal, and takes him to a hotel and pays for his stay to the point of letting the innkeeper run a tab for extra expenses. 
a genuine act of selfless love if there ever were one. Now, the Samaritan shouldn't even be in the story. He's pretty far from home. The location Jesus gives in the parable is a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, not at all near Samaria. Yet here he is. And what is more surprising is that he is the one extending compassion like God would extend compassion. His act of compassion does serve as a rebuke to the uncaring priest and Levite. Surely it would be the priest and Levite who would act as God would, not a heretical, sinful, half-breed Samaritan. They don't worship God in the right place according to the law. They're not true Jews. It's not even worth traveling through their part of the country for pious priests, Levites, and lawyers. Jesus then brings the question to the lawyer, who acted as a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He says the one who showed him mercy. Now here's the most surprising and insulting part of this parable. The good and holy Jewish lawyer is told to go and be like a Samaritan in order to inherit eternal life. Now remember, that was the context of this encounter. What must be done to inherit eternal life? What must be done in order to be saved? Jesus, how do I go to heaven when I die? Jesus is giving the lawyer new directions, actually directions for a new way of being human. And he uses someone who would be considered the scum of the earth to the lawyer as the model of being an image bearer of God. The Samaritan is an icon of God in this parable. That means very little to me, but it would have been quite shocking to a good Jewish lawyer in first century Palestine. At least two questions we can ask about this parable. Where do we see Jesus in it? And where do we see ourselves in it? I think it's obvious where we see Jesus in this parable. He is the good Samaritan. But where do we see ourselves? Where do we see the church? These are the questions that we must struggle with. And if you're like I am, it wouldn't mean much for Jesus to tell me today to be like a Samaritan. I'm not offended by Samaritans. I don't have any ill will against the Samaritan. There's no bad blood, as it were, between them and me. But what if it were an illegal immigrant from Central America instead of a Samaritan in this parable? What if it were a Republican or a Democrat? What if it were a black teenager, a member of the alt-right, a Muslim, an abortion doctor, or a trans woman? Would it change what Jesus was trying to get at? You see, loved ones, we are all image bearers of God. That image has been smeared almost to the point that we cannot see it. And without divine grace and favor, we certainly cannot clearly reflect it. But thanks be to God for the one who is the image of the invisible God and his saving work, which is the restoration of the divine image within us. You see, that is where my mind goes when I hear someone talking about being saved. When I hear someone talk about salvation or going to heaven when you die, I think of spending eternity not in some far-off place, 
but spending it here, ever more being transformed and conformed to the image in which I was created. By God's grace, you and I will look like him. Sin will be no more. Tribalism and disdain for the other will be something we struggle will not be something we struggle with. Radical love that seeks only the best for the other will be our way. The church fathers in the first several centuries in the history of the church understood this is what salvation is. Athanasius, writing in the fourth century, said that God became man so that we might become God. And he's right. The Orthodox Church calls this theosis, or deification. To be sure, there will forever remain a distinction between the creator and the created. But we will become by grace what we cannot become by nature. That is God reconciling all things to himself. That is being an icon of God. That is the gospel. And that is our salvation. And Jesus is telling a lawyer and us in this parable that it happens through our unconditional love for God and our unconditional love for everyone around us, no matter the difference. I would put it to you that our salvation will only extend as far as our love for God and our love for our neighbor extends. Now, I suspect that I've highlighted a way of thinking about the Christian faith and salvation that might be unfamiliar, maybe even uncomfortable maybe even heretical to some of you today. I assure you that I am in bounds of what is considered to be right believing by the church, but it is different than what we're used to in the West, particularly America. And I want to close with the words of a bishop of the church 1,600 years ago in ancient Turkey, St. Gregory of Nazianzus. He wrote about the incarnation of Jesus and this process of deification in profound ways. I shared this thought with my wife, and she said, Jed, you can't say it any better, so yeah, just quote him. And maybe you will agree. He said, let us recognize our dignity. Let us honor our archetype. Let us know for what Christ died. Let us become like Christ since Christ became like us. Let us become gods for his sake, since for ours, he for ours became man. He assumed the worst that he might give us the better. He became poor that we through his poverty might be rich. He took upon himself the form of a servant that we might receive back our liberty. He came down that we might be exalted. He was tempted that we might conquer. He was dishonored that he might glorify us. He died that he might save us. He ascended that he might draw to himself us who were lying low in the fall of sin. Let us give all, offer all, to him who gave himself a ransom and reconciliation for us. But one can give nothing like oneself, understanding the mystery, and becoming for his sake all that he became for ours. Do this, and you will live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.